This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, when it comes to addictions and big money, nothing ever changes without a fight. Think about what happened with, you know, big tobacco back in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, are we seeing something similar when it comes to vaping? Some doctors think so. Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada is out with some new research, and they say it shows that the prices for what's known as starter vaping products are actually coming down. And that's got them worried that this could make those products more accessible to young people and are an attempt to maybe counteract some of those new regulations that have been announced by the BC government. Let's talk more about this now with Cynthia Callard, who's the Executive Director of Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. Cynthia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Tell me, what is it that you took a look at here? Well, we uh, do a periodic survey of prices uh, for cigarettes and, the, and other products. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were wandering uh, around Montreal, taking pictures and noting that we saw that the prices for vaping products were much, much lower than they had been at the beginning of the year. It's important to remember that these products have only been in convenience stores for a little over a year. They were legalized last May in 2018, and many of them were only introduced, say, you know, in January this year and so forth. So so we're able to kind of see a very sudden, sudden change in, in what was happening with the prices. Some of them, for example, that were introduced at $40 in January were now selling for 10 Whoa. And even... <laughs> and that's for a, a starter kit that includes a vaping device and a charger and some pods to start with. And we're particularly concerned about making that first experimentation too affordable for young people. And uh, we've learned this from from our you know decades of experience with tobacco products, is that when the prices are low, more people right. are likely to try. When they try, they're more likely to become addicted. And when they're addicted, they're less likely to try to quit as long as there's low prices. So we're concerned with this with respect to vaping products as well. And do you think that is an effort on the part of these companies to to do just that, to get more people hooked? I think that that's, um, that is definitely part of their plan. And I think there's something else underway, which is that the, um, before the product was legal, we had a lot of vape shops that kind of sold much more expensive devices and they sold um, a different kind of product. But I think there's a competition going on between the vape stores and the convenience stores. So I think they're, they have two interests. One, they want to expand their long-term consumer base, get people addicted young and keep them for a lifetime. Right. And that they also want to get rid of the competition. That's really changed, though, hasn't it, Cynthia? Because, you know, when vaping first started, it was seen as a a way to help people quit cigarette smoking. And now it's turned into something very different. It's amazing how quickly it has turned around. I think a year ago, what was driving government decisions were that the potential of these products to, you know, to make things um to give smokers another alternative that was maybe less health, uh, harmful was very attractive. And in, over the last year, what we've seen is that the companies are driven not to replace smokers with vapors, but to add vapors to their clientele base. And we've had an opportunity to you know, look at how they're explaining this to their investors, and they're quite open at saying that um, for them, vaping is additive. It adds to their consumer base. It increases the number of people that they can sell products to. It increases the number of times that people can use a product because sometimes you can vape in an environment where you can't smoke, so it makes it easier to 
to maintain an right. addiction, and it adds to their long-term profits. So I, I think this is um, it's now time for governments to take a, a, a rethink of what's happening. British Columbia was one of the first governments to kind of refresh its policies um, just recently, and we're hoping that the same thing will happen across the country. But are there concerns then, do you think, with these companies that regulations are coming? Well, I think they're aware that they are, and they're fighting back hard. Uh, they're planning um, um, advertising campaigns to discourage uh, regulations. They claim that the regulations the government are going to put in place are, they'll say they're ineffective, and that they're kind of almost unethical, because if you ban a flavor that children like, then it might prevent a smoker from trying a less harmful product. There, there's a lot of very, very sophisticated public relations initiatives underway. And we haven't really been in this kind of a, a ground war, really, with tobacco companies for a decade or so since they, we had smoking bans, I guess, since they had, that they were right. developing, you know, that many front groups that are arguing for them and to um, try and really put pressure on government to leave the market open for them. So, Cynthia, what does the um, Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada then think about what BC is trying to do? Uh, We're very pleased with uh, what we heard from British Columbia last year. They um, are the first province to look at a tax. We think their tax will be have some effect, but it's not as effective. It's not going to address the underlying price war element of it. Mm-hmm. As long as companies can sell a product below the cost of production, as long as they can use it like a lost leader to get a long-term addict, you know, like almost the old adage of, of a drug dealer is the first one's for free, um, then, then I think we're going to have a, a problem. We need a different kind of price control as well. And we're hoping to you know, encourage British Columbia and other governments to adopt that. But as for the other measures that were announced, they're, they're, they're sensible, they're prudent, and we think they'll be very effective. Right, because one thing BC is doing that they've specified that adults can still use flavored vaping products, uh, not accessible to children, but in adult vaping stores. Do you think that's the way to go? Because then it is more of a cessation tool. Well, at this time, um, uh, this time, yes, that would that ref- reflect our position. We don't want to ban all flavors. What we want to do is change it so that they can't have any flavor on the market. The approach taken in BC of saying, "Well, we'll restrict the locations," is a sensible approach. But I note that there was a you know a report in today's um, um, Canadian Medical Association journal that talked about um, an, the near death of someone who was using a legal vaping product with a flavoring, and it was the flavorant that triggered his lungs to become extremely dysfunctional. So I think that it's possible that we could learn that flavorings are dangerous. What's really ha- One of the things that's happened over the last year is we, um, people said, well, we don't know what the long-term health risks of these products are, and somehow that got translated into policy as being they're probably not that bad. And as there's more experience with the products and there's more reports and more evidence comes up, I think we're going to have to be in a constant state of evaluation to see what the rule should be. But for the moment, uh, we think the regulations that were proposed in British Columbia are, as I say, prudent and sound and will be effective. Do we underestimate, though, the ability of like kind of these big companies to adapt? And I mean, they're not just going to roll over and give up their customers. Oh, thank you for that question. I think that's exactly the point. The, the basic economics are wrong. It, you know, it, 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 tobacco companies right now have a responsibility to maximize their revenue and profits for their shareholders. Well, they don't do that by helping smokers switch from one product that's very profitable to them to another product that they can 
barely make money on. They only do that if they stop smokers from quitting or if they get new users. So for them, their incentives are completely at odds with the public health goals. And I think this is a more fundamental structural problem we have in this market for recreational drugs that we're going to have to come to grips with. Um, we, we have, in some measure, with um, uh, when cannabis was legalized the same year as vaping, and the cannabis problem has not surfaced with youth in the same way that the vaping problem has, and I think that's in part because there were very strict rules on how cannabis wholesalers and retailers could you know, uh, be right. manipulated by their suppliers. So, so, so I think there are lessons. There's lots we have left to learn and to, to improve on, yes. All right, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate this. Thank you. That's Cynthia Callard, Executive Director of Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. They continually monitor the price of vaping products, and they've just come out with a study, and they say they're worried because they see the prices for some starter vaping products coming down. And you heard Cynthia's example there, uh, a starter pack uh, that was $40 at the beginning of this year is now down in, in many locations to about $10. And they think that is a way for these companies to try to get early you know, users in, get them to try it out and then hook them. And then they are customers and then they're addicted at that point.